Please take a Bible in hand. If you're using a Bible from the Pew Rack, you'll want to turn to page 571. We're looking at the second half of Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 7. This morning we will focus on verses 8 through 13. In a moment here, I'll read the entire chapter for us. So we'll begin in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 here in just a second. What we have here in Isaiah chapter 6 is Isaiah's call to prophetic ministry. So last week, we mainly focused on the way that the Lord prepared him for the ministry. The Lord had given Isaiah a vision of himself there in the temple. The Lord had cleansed him, and now the Lord is going to send him. So this week, it's there in uh, verse you say verse 8, it's his commission. In verse 9, it's the message that the Lord gives him. In verse 10, you see it's the task that is before him. And then in verses 11 through 13, we see God's purpose and the mission that he gives Isaiah. Before I read God's word for us, uh, would you join me in prayer again? And we ask for God's help this morning. Heavenly Father, this is your word. You have given it through the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And you also give that same Holy Spirit to your people. So we ask that you would give us wisdom and understanding and the knowledge of you. And we ask that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart to see the hope to which you have called us. To see the glorious inheritance of those who belong to you and to see the immeasurable greatness of your power towards those who have faith. Oh Lord, take away our unbelief and build our faith, we ask, this morning. Faith in your Son, Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Hear the word of God from Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes 
lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terabith or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. How do you define success? A research group called Populous, in partnership with Gallup, conducted a first-of-its-kind, or so they claim, nationally representative study to understand what success truly means to Americans. And those findings were published in 2019. Now, there's a lot of interesting things in that study, but maybe the most interesting thing is this. The study found that there is no average definition of success. Instead, everyone tends to have a highly unique personal view of success. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, I want to remind you of something. You and I, we do not get to define success for ourselves. You're a Christian, you don't get to define success for yourself. Your Lord defines that for you. You don't get to choose your life's mission. Jesus has exchanged his life for yours. You belong to him. Your life is hidden in him. Now, you don't live for yourself. You live for him. So your definition of success, your goal in life, is to be faithful to your Lord. Now, I don't know exactly what ambitions Isaiah had for his life that day when he came into the temple and he saw a vision of the Lord and then he leaves that place as a prophet for God. We do not know that when he encountered the Lord, whatever personal goals he had, he laid those down and he embraced the mission that the Lord was calling him to that day. Now, tradition has it that Isaiah was cut in half during the persecution under the reign of the wicked king Manasseh of Judah. And many believe that his martyrdom is referenced in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, where it says in the hall of faith, some were sawn in two. He faithfully proclaimed God's word to a sinful people and it cost him his life. And in Isaiah, we have a true success story. 
faithful to his Lord, faithful to his mission all the way to the end. I want us to see a couple things from his commissioning this morning. I have three sections for us. In verse 8, I want us to see that Isaiah was cleansed for mission. And then in verses 9 through 13, I want us to recognize it was a hard mission that he has sent on. At the end of verse 13, I want us to see the glimmer of hope in this mission. It is a hopeful mission, but it's only a glimmer. Verse 8, Isaiah is cleansed for mission. When he walked into the temple that day, he was not prepared to be a prophet. At the sight of the Lord, he recognizes his sinfulness and that his lips are unclean. He did not see himself as someone who was qualified to speak for God. He sees the Lord's holiness. He despairs over his sin, but then his guilt is taken away. His sin is atoned for, and he is cleansed for worship, and he is cleansed for service. He leaves a transformed man, and with a new direction, a charge, a commissioning. Now, there's something of a pattern of this in Scripture. And, of course, the pattern makes sense. If God's going to use anyone, there's only one man who ever walked this earth that wasn't a sinner in need of cleansing before he could be used by God, and it was God's only son. So if he uses anyone outside of Jesus, they must be cleansed in order to be a worshiper and a servant of God. Think about it. David himself testifies to this experience. At first, when David committed adultery, then murder, he was willfully hard to his own sin, ignoring it. And then the prophet Nathan called him out on it. And he sees his uncleanness. And he is undone. Does what he's supposed to do. He confesses and repents. And we have a record of that confession and repentance in Psalm 51. David cries out, Create in me a clean heart. Blot out my transgressions. He pleads with the Lord to forgive him, to cleanse him take his guilt away, to atone for his sin. And then do you remember what David says in Psalm 51, verse 13? Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. It's his vow. Having known God's grace, he says, I'm going to tell other sinners like me. David being cleansed has a sense of, of mission. I must tell others this good news. There's other stories. There's probably one that's very familiar of the Apostle Peter, right? There on the night before Jesus goes to the cross, Peter stands up with all his bravado and bravery and pride says, if everyone leaves you, I'll never leave you, Jesus. And Jesus calmly and compassionately and says, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you're going to deny me three times. And he does. 
He plays the part of the coward. Total failure in the face of pressure. Then after Jesus' resurrection, he's meeting with some disciples on the beach and they're, they're eating breakfast together. And he looks at Peter, the failure, the thrice failure, the three-time failure, the denier of Christ. He says, do you love me more than these? He says, Lord, I, you know I love you. He says, feed my lambs. Then again, Peter, do you love me more than these? Lord, you know I love you. Tend my sheep. Do you love me more than these? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Peter, feed my sheep. Three times he's commissioned once for each of his failures. Peter is cleansed, sent. There's something of this for every believer. Think about the narrative that the Apostle Paul gives us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. He begins with reminding the Christian, hey, you were a child of wrath, a son of disobedience. You were following Satan, but for the grace of God. And when the grace of God intervened in your life and rescued you, you were saved by grace through faith. And then saved for what? Says verse 10 of Ephesians 2, created in Christ Jesus four good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is a pattern of God's dealing with his servants. He takes the unclean, he washes them, and sends them on mission. It's true for Isaiah. It's true for you. Quit dwelling on your past. It's covered in the blood of Jesus and his righteousness. And go forth. Saying, here I am, send me. I must tell others of this good news. You and I. Cleanse for worship, cleanse for service. But Isaiah has a hard mission, doesn't he? In verses 9 through 13, we see that hard mission. What's hard about this, this mission that the Lord has given Isaiah? Look back at verse 9. You see the message that he is to deliver to this people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. It's a confrontational message. And there's no relief that's offered in the message. And then in verse 10, what is the task that, that the Lord has given to Isaiah? Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and, their, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. It's a hard mission. Isaiah, go preach to hard hearts. Oh, by the way, when you do so, it's only going to get worse. Their hearts are going to get harder, Isaiah. Go sow the seed of God's word on stony ground, and the ground's going to get harder. It will not produce fruit. Isaiah himself has just seen the Lord, and now he's sent from that vision 
to be God's spokesperson, but to people who won't see the Lord. That's his message and his task. It brings up what the theologians call theodicy. It's the problem of God's goodness. What do we mean by that? Well, it's the idea that if God is good, why would he allow evil? Here in this case, if God is good, why would he ordain a people to destruction and the means by which he would harden their hearts would be his very word? Now, there are some who would take this passage and try to get God off the hook, if you would. They say, this is Isaiah kind of interjecting this little piece back into this call narrative after years and years of frustration in ministry. And that after many years of preaching with little to no results, Isaiah has come to a spiritual crisis And so he tries to then go back and reinterpret his call and say, well, this is what God intended all along. But that's not the case. Others may see that maybe there is in this declaration that he is to bring that there is implicit a call to repentance. After all, we do see that pattern occasionally in Scripture, that in an announcement of a hard judgment, There is implied, but if you respond in this way, you won't receive this judgment. We see that in Jonah, right? In Jonah chapter 3, Jonah doesn't want to go preach to the Ninevites because he knows that maybe through his preaching, God would recover and lead the Ninevites into repentance. And Jonah doesn't like Ninevites. He doesn't want them to repent. And so in Jonah chapter 3, Jonah stands up, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then Nineveh repents. Maybe that's the case here with Isaiah. Probably not. The text is pretty straightforward. There could have been a remnant who hear this message and turn to the Lord. For the most part, God has other designs in this. He says so in the passage. But before we look at that, this is one of those passages that it exposes our hearts, doesn't it? It really does. We can see God's design and purpose in it, but before we get there, what is it, what's going through your mind right now? Is it the thought, I could never serve a God like that? Or I couldn't ever believe in a God like that. A God who would use his own word to harden people's hearts? Not for me. We need to be careful. We are dealing with the Holy One of Israel. We need to be careful about the presuppositions that we bring when we come to God's word. God has given him a hard mission, but he's done so for a purpose. The first purpose is this. This is a judicial hardening. This hardening is an act of divine judgment. We see that in verses 11 through 12. Look back there in Isaiah 6. Isaiah says, how long, O Lord? And the Lord tells him, 
until cities lie, lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. The Lord is promising destruction and exile is coming to this people. And Isaiah is serving that purpose. It is a step on the stage towards that end. Now God is just keeping his word. This is exactly what he told Israel he would do in Deuteronomy 28. The first half of Deuteronomy 28, God says, here are the blessings for obedience. And then in the second half of Deuteronomy 28, he says, and here are the curses for disobedience. And now, after centuries and generations of disobedience, it's coming. So in Deuteronomy 28, 15, remember the Lord tells him, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command to you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then verse 36 of Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And then in verse 63 of Deuteronomy 28, and as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. This is not a morally neutral people that Isaiah is going to preach to. They are hard hearts. They are sinners and rebels by choice. In verse 9, the Lord refers to them as this people. It's a very cold way to refer to the nation. Implied is, they were in covenant to be my people. They have broken that covenant. They have rejected my rule and my reign. They are no longer a theocracy. This people, this is the judgment to come upon them. In Isaiah's lifetime, the northern kingdom falls in 722 B.C. And after his life in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom is exiled to Babylon for 70 years. I want you to see here that in this hard mission, God is being faithful to his word. We can say more than that. God is being faithful to his promise. It's the promise of judgment. It's the promise of destruction for disobedience. It's the promise of exile for an unfaithful people. But he is being faithful to his promise. He is faithful to his promise in judgment. He will also be faithful to his promise of salvation. He is a God who keeps his word. And in this hard word, he is keeping his word to his people. And today, if you have rejected the promise of the gospel, that any who would turn from their sins and turn to Christ and find forgiveness for their sins, if you have rejected that promise of salvation, 
You need to know that the God of the Bible is a God who keeps his promises and he will then keep his promise a judgment of all who reject his son. That's the first thing. It's a judicial hardening. The second thing here in this hard mission we see is that it is a judgment that is according to a particular sin. This is a hard mission because Israel has sinned in grievous ways. But we could say the punishment fits the crime. Now what sin would deserve such judgment? It is the sin of idolatry. Now, the word idolatry is not here in Isaiah 6, but the concept is all over the passage. Let me show it to you. First of all, in Isaiah 2, verse 8, it says that their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. Here, particularly in this passage, the idols are in mind in the way that Isaiah is told to use sensory organs, the eyes, the ears. And what has happened? Well, it's a sensory organ malfunction. And throughout the book of Isaiah, when a sensory organ malfunction is represented and we're told of it, it's pointing to the sin of idolatry. So in Isaiah 42, verse 17, it says, They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. And then verse 18, hear you deaf and look, you blind, you may see. Isaiah 44, there is this rant against idolatry where the prophet is just showing the complete and total nonsense of the idolatry of his day. And so he's pointing out that the gods that you worship, remember, they are the, the work of a craftsman. And that craftsman goes and cuts down a tree. And he says, all right, this half of the tree over here, we're going to burn it for fuel to make food, to cook our food with. And then this half of the tree, we're going to worship it as a god. And Isaiah is pointing out, this is ridiculous. This is nonsense. And then in Isaiah 44, verse 18, what does he say? They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. Why is idolatry such a grievous sin? It's sin of replacing God and making something else God in his place. Martin Luther's larger catechism, when he's discussing the first commandment, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Martin Luther defines the problem of idolatry this way. Whatever your heart clings to and lies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. G.K. Beale defines idolatry this way. Whatever your heart clings to or lies on for ultimate security... Another has defined idolatry this way. The idol is whatever claims the loyalty that belongs to God alone. And it's a grievous sin, not because it, just because it dishonors God, but because of the effect it has on the human soul. In Psalm 115 verse 4, 
There's a lot of correspondence between what the psalmist writes here and what Isaiah is told here in Isaiah 6. Listen, it says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. And here, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. And then here's the devastating effect from idolatry. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Psalm 115, verse 8. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. This is the mission that Isaiah is given. To call out their idolatry. It's a judicial judgment against God's people. They have broken their relationship to him and chosen idols. And he's giving them to their idolatry, making them like those very idols. G.K. Beale put it this way. Through Isaiah, God commands the idolatrous people to become like the idols they have refused to stop loving. And then he makes this application. The principle for them and for us is we resemble what we revere either for ruin or for restoration. It's a hard mission. It's a hard message. But Isaiah responds in humble submission. There in verse 11, how does Isaiah respond? He says, how long, O Lord? Here he is, he's He's humbling himself before the task before him. He's accepting the call. He's committing himself to obedience. He's going to speak God's word to a people who do not want to hear it. Now, I know that there are people in this room, you've experienced that. You, you have a sense of that hard mission before you. There are others around you that are openly rejecting God's word and faithfulness requires that you say what God says. John Calvin put it this way, natural affections therefore ought not to prevent us from performing what is our duty. By natural affections, he means family members, friends, those that genuinely love Yet you owe it to them to say what God's word says. It's a hard mission. It's the most loving way to treat those who are rejecting God. Isaiah says, how long, O Lord? He also, as he humbles himself before the Lord, accepting this call, he, he does so with a heavy heart. He is filled with compassion on the hearers that he is being sent to. But there's something in this, how long, O oh Lord, that Isaiah is not claiming to be more compassionate than the Lord is. He knows God is rich in grace. He knows that he didn't have eyes to see until God gave him eyes to see. He knows that he didn't have ears to hear until God gave him ears to hear. He knew, knows that he has an unbelieving heart 
And he would still have an unbelieving heart until God gave him a new heart. And he senses that there will be a time when mercy will triumph over judgment. And the Lord confirms it to him. Look back at verse 13. There we see it as a hopeful mission. The first part of the verse isn't hopeful. It's still part of the judgment. It says, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like the terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. So the Lord says, even among the remnant of God's people, there will remain sin that will be judged. But then the last line, the last sentence of the verse, the holy seed is its stump. Alec Moutier put it this way, hope is the unexpected fringe attached to the garment of doom here. Hope is the unexpected fringe attached to the garment of doom. The exile would last until 515 BC for Judah, and then the people would return to Jerusalem. The temple would be rebuilt. The walls would be rebuilt of the city. But yet, hundreds of years later, though they have returned from exile, they haven't returned to the Lord. And this is part of Jesus' message when he arrives. To point out to the nation that they are still far from God. That they are still in a spiritual exile. And so in Mark chapter 3, some people come and they accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. They're openly rejecting the Messiah and then blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And from there in Mark's gospel, that's when Jesus starts teaching in parables. After this blatant, open, public rejection of him. And so he tells his disciples in Mark chapter 4, verse 11, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. And then he quotes Isaiah 6, and he quotes it by way of fulfillment, saying, So that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. He tells his disciples, I'm going to use these lowly, homely parables from everyday life. And in that, you're going to learn of the kingdom of heaven. But those who reject me, when they hear the parables, they're going to think they understand, but they won't understand. They're going to say, oh, we, we, under, we get that. A seed goes into the ground, and then it, it comes up and it bears fruit. And the amount of fruit is based on the, the quality of the soil. So if it's on stony ground, it's, it's probably not going to bear fruit. And if it's among thorns, it's going to be choked out. And we, we, we get that. If it's on good soil, it's going to bear much fruit. And Jesus said, you're not getting it. You won't get it. They were still in exile. They were still consumed with idolatry, but it's a different type of idolatry in Jesus' day. Why is it that they rejected him? Here it is, the living word of God before them, they reject it. And instead, they chose what he calls the tradition of men. In Mark chapter 7, verse 8, he says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. 
And that's his main issue with the scribes and Pharisees of his day. Is that they have chosen something other than God to pledge their allegiance to. And here is God's Messiah before them. It wasn't an idol like it was in Isaiah's day that was carved from wood or fashioned from stone. It was a different type of idol. The people of Jesus' day are still blind idolaters. Those who should have known better don't. And they're blind to their blindness. Then Jesus, in his earthly ministry, he does miracles. And these miracles are out of just genuine compassion for people. Demonstration of the kingdom of God in their midst. The demonstration that he is the Messiah. These physical miracles that Jesus does throughout his ministry have a greater spiritual significance pointing to the work that he came to do. So, in Mark chapter 7, we see Jesus put his fingers in the ear of a deaf man. And his ears are opened and he's healed. And in Mark chapter 10, he heals blind Bartimaeus on his way to Jerusalem. on his way to the cross. And there on the cross, Jesus enters the darkness. Gospel writers tell us that while he hung there for three hours, the land is covered in darkness. For sinners to be saved from their damning spiritual blindness, the sun enters the darkness and conquers it. So after he rises from the dead, he's walking with two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. And it would seem that Luke has Isaiah 6 in mind. He's pointing out these sensory organ malfunctions in these two disciples. Verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And then Jesus tells them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart, dull of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Verse 25. And then after they sat down for a meal and Jesus breaks the bread, they recognize him for who he is. And what does Luke say in verse 31? And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And then what did the two disciples tell each other? Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Their spiritual blindness and deafness is lifted. See the Savior. In the book of Acts, there's a, a zealous young man, zealous for Judaism, blind to Jesus being the Messiah, and he's terrorizing the church. His name is Saul. And he's seeking to do whatever he can do to harm and thwart the mission of the church. Until on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, he's blinded by the light, and Jesus literally comes and tells him to go see Ananias. And Saul goes blinded. And as Ananias 
shows him the way, explains to him the gospel, and Paul repents and believes, what does it say in Acts, that like scales fall off his eyes. The Lord was showing him his spiritual condition. And then the Lord was cleansing him and sending him out to be an apostle to the Gentiles. What is the idolatry of our day? Well, there's a lot of ways we can answer that. I think it does come back to one thing. Remember, in the beginning, we talked about how do you define success? And most people want to define success according to their own ideas. I think one of the biggest idols of our day, if not the biggest, is the self, isn't it? The autonomous self. We want to determine when life begins and when it ends. We want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. We want to believe what we want to believe, no matter if it corresponds to reality or not. We want everyone to affirm me and what I want to do and what I want to believe. We want to be our own God. We need to know that God is a God of justice. And that... In his justice, he is free to give any and all up to their blindness. And when he judicially hardens someone's heart, he is righteous to do so. He is not turning a believer into an unbeliever. He is giving an unbeliever over to their unbelief. You want to be your own God? I'll let you do that. I'll damn you to that. We are blind and deaf, heading to destruction, apart from a Redeemer. He is a God of justice. And he is a God of grace. And according to that grace, he can turn the hardest unbeliever to a believer. He can turn idolaters into worshipers. He's a God of grace who cleanses sinners and sends them out with the message of good news. May we be faithful to this God of grace, faithful to the one who has called us and cleansed us, faithful to the one who sends us out. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left your church, your people in the darkness. That you have sent your Son to be the light of the world, to heal our spiritual condition. And so we turn again and again to your Son, Jesus, for that healing. And we embrace that you have set us apart, not for ourselves, but for your glory, that we would be a city on a hill. Help us to be faithful to that, to our Savior, to the very light of the world. May we be committed to it, filled with humble gratitude that you have not left us to our sins, 
but have rescued us and send us with a message of salvation to a lost world. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.